Chapter 5, Part 2 of Aircraft and Submarines by Willis J. Abbott. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. The Development of the Airplane, Part 2. So after continued experimental flights in the open fields near Dayton had convinced them that the practical weaknesses in their machine had been eliminated, the Wrights packed up their flyer and went to France. Before so doing, they tried to get encouragement from the United States government, but failed. Neither the government nor any rich American was willing to share the cost of further experiments. All that had been done was at their own cost, both in time and money. In France, whither they went in 1908, they had no coldness to complain of. It was then the golden day of aviation in the land which always afforded to the knights of the air their warmest welcome and their most liberal support. Two years had elapsed since Santos Dumont, turning from dirigibles to planes, had made a flight of 238 yards. This the Wrights had at the time excelled at home, but without attracting attention. France, on the contrary, went mad with enthusiasm and claimed for the Brazilian the honor of first demonstrating the possibility of flight in a heavier-than-air machine. England, like the United States, was cold, clinging to the balloon long after all other nations had abandoned it. But France welcomed the rights with enthusiasm. They found rivals aplenty in their field of effort. Santos Dumont, Blériot, Farman, Latham were all flying with airplanes, but with models radically different from that of the American brothers. Nevertheless, the latter made an instant success. From the moment they found that they had hit upon the secret of raising, supporting, and propelling an airplane, the rights made of their profession a matter of cold business. In many ways, this was the best contribution they could possibly have made to the science of aviation, though their keen eye to the main chance did bring down on them a certain amount of ridicule. Europe laughed long at the sang-froid with which Wilbur Wright, having won the Michelin Prize of 800 pounds, gave no heed to the applause which the assembled throng gave him as the money was transferred to him with a neat presentation speech. Without a word, he divided the notes into two packets, handed one to his brother, Orville, and thrust the other into his own pocket. For the glory which attended his achievement, he cared nothing. It was all in a day's work. Later, in the course of trials of a machine for the United States government at Fort Myer, just across the Potomac from Washington, the Wrights seriously offended a certain sort of public sentiment in a way which undoubtedly set back the encouragement of aviation by the United States government very seriously. In 1909, they had received a contract from the government for a machine for the use of the signal service. The price was fixed at $25,000, but a bonus of $2,500 was to be paid for every mile above 40 miles an hour made by the machine on its trial trip. That bonus looked big to the rights, but it cost the cause of aviation many times its face value in the congressional disfavor it caused. Aviation was then in its infancy in the United States. Every man in Congress wanted to see the flights, but Fort Myer, whose parade was to be the testing ground, was fully 14 miles from the capital, and reached only most inconveniently from Washington by trolley, or most expensively by carriage or automobile. Day after day, members of the House and Senate made the long journey across the Potomac. Time and again, they journeyed back without even a sight of the flyer in the hangar. One after another little flaws discovered in the machine led the aviators to postpone their flight. 
investigating statesmen who thought that their position justified them in seeking special privileges, were brusquely turned away by the military guard. The dusk of many a summer's night saw thousands of disappointed sightseers tramping the long road back to Washington. The climax came when, on a clear but breezy day, Wilbur Wright announced that the machine was in perfect condition and could meet its tests readily, but that in order to win a bigger bonus, he would postpone the flight for a day with less wind. All over Washington, the threat was heard that night that Congress would vote no more money for aviation, and whether or not the incident was the cause, the sequence was that the American Congress was, until the menace of war with Germany in 1916, the most niggardly of all legislative bodies in its treatment of the Flying Corps. When the rights did finally fly, they made a triumphant flight before 12,000 spectators. The test involved crossing the Potomac, going down its north side to Alexandria, and then back to Fort Myer. Ringing cheers and the crashing strains of the military band greeted the return of the aviator. But oblivious to the enthusiasm, Wilbur Wright stood beside his machine with pencil and pad, computing his bonus. It figured up to $5,000, and the reporters chronicled that the Wrights knew well the difference between solid coin and the bubble of reputation. But this seemingly cold indifference to fame and single-minded concentration on the business of flying on the part of the Wrights was in fact of the utmost value to aviation as an art and a science. They were pioneers, and successful ones. Their example was heeded by others in the business. In every way they sought to discourage that wild reaching after public favor and notoriety that led aviators to attempt reckless feats and often sacrificed their lives in a foolish effort to astonish an audience. No one ever heard of either of the Wright brothers looping the loop, doing a demon glide, or in any other fashion reducing the profession of aviation to the level of a circus. In a time when brave and skillful aviators, with a mistaken idea of the ethics of their calling, were appealing to sensation lovers by the practice of daredevil feats, the Wrights, with admirable common sense and dignity, stood sturdily against any such degradation of the aviator's art. In this position, they were joined by Glenn Curtis, and the influence of the three was beginning to be shown in the reduced number of lives sacrificed in these follies when the Great War broke upon the world and gave to aviation its greatest opportunity. The world will hope, nevertheless, that after that war shall end, the effort to adapt the airplane to the ends of peace will be no less earnest and persistent than have been the methods by which it has been made a most serviceable auxiliary of war. In July 1915, Collier's Weekly published an interview with Orville Wright in which that man, ordinarily of few words, set up some interesting theories upon the future of airplanes. The greatest use of the airplane to date, said Mr. Wright, has been as a tremendously big factor of modern warfare. But the greatest use of the airplane eventually will be to prevent war. Some day there will be neither war nor rumors of war, and the reason may be flying machines. It sounds paradoxical. We are building airplanes to use in time of war, and will continue to build them for war. We think of war, and we think of airplanes. Later on, perhaps, we shall think of airplanes in connection with the wisdom of keeping out of war. The airplane will prevent war by making it too expensive, too slow, too difficult, too long drawn out, in brief, by making the cost prohibitive.
Did you ever stop to think, inquires Wright, that there is a very definite reason why the present war in Europe has dragged along for a year, with neither side gaining much advantage over the other? The reason, as I figure it out, is airplanes. In consequence of the scouting work done by the flying machines, each side knows exactly what the opposing forces are doing. There is little chance for one army to take another by surprise. Napoleon won his wars by massing his troops at unexpected places. The airplane has made that impossible. It has equalized information. Each side has such complete knowledge of the other's movements that both sides are obliged to crawl into trenches and fight by means of slow, tedious routine rather than by quick, spectacular dashes. My impression is that before the present war started, the army experts expected it to be a matter of a few weeks, or at the most, a few months. Today, it looks as if it might run into years before one side can dictate terms. Now, a nation that may be willing to undertake a war lasting a few months may well hesitate about engaging in one that will occupy years. The daily cost of a great war is, of course, stupendous. When this cost runs on for years, the total is likely to be so great that the side which wins nevertheless loses. War will become prohibitively expensive. The scouting work in flying machines will be the predominating factor, as it seems to me, in bringing this about. I like to think so, anyhow. What, in your opinion, has the present war demonstrated regarding the relative advantages of airplanes and Zeppelin airships? The inventor was asked. The airplane seems to have been of the more practical use, replied Wright. In the first place, dirigible airships of the Zeppelin type are so expensive to build costing somewhere around a half a million dollars each, that it is distinctly disadvantageous to the nation operating them to have one destroyed. But what is more important is the fact that the Zeppelin is so large that it furnishes an excellent target, unless it sails considerably higher than is comparatively safe for an airplane. And when the Zeppelin is at a safe height, it is too far above the ground for your scout to make accurate observations. Similarly, when the Zeppelin is used for dropping bombs, it must be too high for the bomb-thrower to show much accuracy. You think that the use of flying machines for scouting purposes will be of considerably more importance than their use as a means of attack? Was another question. That has been decidedly true so far, replied Wright. About all that has been accomplished by either side from bomb-dropping has been to kill a few non-combatants, and that will have no bearing on the result of the war. English newspapers have long talked of the danger of Zeppelin attacks or airplane attacks, but it was all for a purpose, because they did not believe the country was sufficiently prepared for war and sought to arouse the people and the War Department to action by means of the airship bogey. Later history showed Mr. Wright sadly in error on this point. Aside from the use of the machines for war purposes, the war will give a great boost to aviation generally. It has led more men to learn to fly, and with a higher degree of skill than ever before. It has awakened people to aviation possibilities. Just like the automobile, it will become more and more foolproof, easier to handle, and safer. There is no reason why it should not take the place of special trains where there is urgent need of great speed. The airplane has never really come into its own as a sporting proposition. Of late years, the tendency has been to develop a high rate of speed rather than to build machines that may be operated safely at a comparatively low speed.
You see, a machine adapted to make from 70 to 100 miles an hour cannot run at all except at a pretty rapid clip, and this means difficulty in getting down. One must have a good, smooth piece of ground to land on, and plenty of it. When we get an airplane that will fly along at 20 miles an hour, one can land almost any place, on a roof if necessary, and then people will begin to take an interest in owning an airplane for the enjoyment of flying. Is it true that you and your brother had a compact not to fly together? Yes. We felt that until the records of our work could be made complete, it was a wise precaution not to take a chance on both of us getting killed at the same time. We never flew together but once. From 1900 to 1908, the total time in the air for both Wilbur and myself, all put together, was only about four hours. Mr. Wright's statement of the brevity of the time spent in actual flying in order to learn the art will astonish many people. Few novices would be so rash as to undertake to steer an automobile alone after only four hours' practice, and despite the fact that the aviator always has plenty of space to himself, the airplane can hardly yet be regarded as simple a machine to handle as the automobile. Nevertheless, the ease with which the method of its actual manipulation is acquired is surprising. More work is done in the classroom and on the ground to make the fighting pilot than in the air. As we have traced the development of both dirigible and airplane from the first nascent germ of their creation to the point at which they were sufficiently developed to play a large part in the greatest of all wars, let us now consider how hosts of young men, boys in truth, were trained to fly like eagles and to give battle in mid-air to foes no less well-trained and desperate than they. End of The Development of the Airplane, Part 2 Recording by William Tomko.